welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. It's my pleasure to get to continue us on in this Inside Out series that we've been in for the last few weeks, uh, where we've kind of been looking, you know, again for the first time at uh, this very foundational idea of Christian spiritual formation. It's this process by which us normal, broken, deeply flawed human beings can be, through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, shaped into the character of Christ, where we can learn to think, act, respond to the various people, situations, and circumstances of our lives like Jesus would. Uh, And over the past few weeks, we looked at a couple of key ideas uh, that are foundational in the shaping of our spirit, namely what our picture of God is. Last week, we looked at what our picture of ourselves is. And this week, we're looking at a third key idea that has a powerful effect on our spiritual formation, on the shaping of our spirit. And that is, what is our picture of the gospel. And so to get us started, I want us to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. If you turn with me in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark writes, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we ask uh, that you would refresh our hearts. Open our minds, our ears that we might hear once again the good news of the availability of your kingdom. And that we might accept your invitation to step in. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, this idea that our picture of the gospel deeply affects our spiritual formation, it it might be surprising for some of us to hear. You see, for those of us who have been around church, been around church culture a lot, we're pretty familiar with the word gospel. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot in connection with people who don't know Jesus, uh, with people who... uh, are outside of the family of God, mostly for those of us involved in what is known as the evangelical church, the idea of the gospel. Well, for us, we can kind of tend to see it as, well, as the way you get in, like the entrance exam or the initiation process. So much so 
that we might even be tempted to think of the gospel as something that, you know, you hear about in the beginning of your faith journey, you accept, and then you kind of grow past. You go on to bigger, deeper things. Um, Like, you know, if we're talking about spiritual formation, like, aren't we already kind of past the gospel? That can kind of be, you know, how we think. And we think that because in a lot of ways, over the past hundred years or so, what most people refer to when they refer to the gospel actually is a shortened or a truncated version of it. Uh, This is not necessarily because of any kind of subversive, nefarious conspiracy to hide the truth from people or anything. In fact, I believe, for the most part, it's because people were so excited about telling others about Jesus that they tried to synthesize the message, you know, boil it down to its essential bullet points, kind of get it down into their, you know, their one-minute elevator speech sort of thing. But when they did, kind of the unwitting byproduct of that process, well, we ended up, we ended, we truncated it. We made it incomplete. Ultimately, we shifted the focus of the gospel. See, for the most part, the understanding of the gospel that circulates in religious and even non-religious circles has been boiled down to what can be described as uh, gospels of sin management. Essentially, different ways of saying that Jesus died for your sins, and if you accept him as your Savior, you can get your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. And now, the, the, the thing about these definitions of the gospel is that the basic concept that they talk about is very biblical. Like, uh, like the Bible is very, very clear that we all, us humans, we are all sinners. And through Jesus, uh, we can be forgiven of our sins and be assured of living on into eternity in the presence of God. Like, that's, that's very clear in the Bible. But the problem with making these sin management gospels, making this kind of message the core of the gospel, is that they center the message on the wrong thing. It kind of makes everything about where we spend our life after death. It kind of makes everything about us in our sin. We end up being the stars, the center of the story, which, of course, is a problem because us being the center of the story, well, it's kind of what got us into this mess in the first place. And if our picture of the gospel is that Jesus really only exists to manage our sin after we commit it, well, then we're left with really no hope 
of ever living a kind of life where our lives aren't continually being disrupted by it. No real pathway to be free from the sins that we commit that hurt us, that hurt the people that we love. No real pathway to be free from the oppressive world system that we live under. The gospel of sin management in heaven when you die is very effective in addressing our desire to avoid hell in eternity. But it really gives no answer to the hell that we are living in now. Essentially making the story of Jesus irrelevant for how we live our day-to-day life. I mean, once my eternity is secure... There's not really much else to do besides just kind of wait around to die or, you know, for Jesus to come back. Kind of makes all of life like a visit to the DMV, right? You, you get your ticket and then just, you know, wait there, sit there, wait till your number gets called, you know, up yonder, uh, as if you will. I mean, sure, there's some reference to the fact that maybe we should try to be good, You know, while you're waiting in the DMV, try to be nice to the people that are sitting next to you. I mean, Jesus did die for us after all, so that's the least we could do, right? And while we're waiting to die, maybe we can tell some other people that, you know, if they want, they can go to heaven too when they die if they accept Jesus' death as payment for their sin. But besides that, you know, we just kind of have to wait till heaven to be free from our insecurities, free from our addictions. We have to wait to heaven to be free from our anger or our fear. I guess we just wait till heaven to be healed from our diseases and our dysfunctions. We wait to heaven for the oppression of sin to be lifted from our lives, from the lives of the people that we love, for injustice to cease, for the world to experience shalom. And so if you've been in church circles... And if you've ever found yourself kind of feeling or thinking that this old church Christian thing is pretty pointless and irrelevant, well, it's probably because you're still operating under this idea of the gospel of sin management. But here's the thing. The gospel of sin management is not the gospel that Jesus taught. The gospel that Jesus taught includes a freedom, a salvation from sin that doesn't only kick in after you die. The gospel that Jesus taught announced a heavenly reality that we can enter now, today. And to describe this present time salvation from sin, this present time experience of a relationship with God, this present time heavenly reality, Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, Jesus also had a shorthand, a one-minute elevator speech when it came to the gospel. His version, though, centers around the idea of the kingdom 
of God. And the fact that it was now available, that it's now at hand, that it has now come near, it's within reach. Now, just to give you a sense of Jesus' emphasis, this phrase, kingdom of God, along with its synonymous phrase, kingdom of heaven, that, we, that Matthew uses, it appears 109 times throughout the New Testament. It was the predominant image that Jesus used to talk about the life that he was offering to humanity. And I remember growing up, I, I grew up in, in kind of a Baptist church sort of circle, and and the whole time I was growing up, this idea of the kingdom of God usually got explained as, well, this is, you know, this heaven, as in the place that you go to after you die. And so whenever I would read or encounter the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, I would try to then insert the image of, you know, that place that you go to after you die into whatever the Bible, whatever Jesus was saying with that phrase. And... Well, if you've ever tried to do that, you realize that it just doesn't make sense. That most of what Jesus talks about doesn't quite fit if you try to squeeze in equating the idea of the kingdom of God with this place that we go to after we die. And so, to a large degree, even though I grew up in church and reading my Bible, most of Jesus' teachings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, they just didn't make sense to me at all. And so I really believe that key to understanding the gospel that Jesus announced, the good news that Jesus announced, well, key to that is to understand what Jesus means when he says the phrase, kingdom of God. Now, of course, in its simplest form, a kingdom is the realm in which a king rules. And so the kingdom of God is, well, it's quite simply that realm where God is king. It is where what God wants done is done. How he wants it done. When he wants it done. It is the place where God's action flows, accomplishing everything that he desires. Dallas Willard defines it quite succinctly as the kingdom of God is the range of God's effectual will. Which I think it might be helpful for us at this point just to stop and just think about that. Imagine all the things that God wants to happen. Pick a real practical scenario. Maybe it's a scenario at home, at work, in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a scenario on the other side of the world. Just think about it. What does God want to happen in that situation? Now imagine that happening. Wouldn't that be a wonderful reality to experience? Well, that, that is the kingdom of God. I mean, if you've traveled to other countries at all, or even if you've studied history or, you know, listened to the news, for that matter, you know how governments and who is in charge can really affect the quality of life in a particular place. We've experienced how the wrong person in power, how the wrong authority can really make life miserable in the place where they govern. On the other hand, we've also gotten a taste, right, of how nice life can be when the right 
people are running things. The kingdom of God is where God runs things. Imagine what that would be like. If you look just a little bit further there in the first chapter of Mark, uh, you'll see that Mark immediately gives us a few examples of real tangible examples of what that would feel like. In, Mark, in verse 21, uh, Mark writes, uh, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Most of us have spent enough time listening to other people talk to have a good idea of what it sounds like when someone is talking but has no idea what they are talking about. And I know what you're thinking right now and just put that out of your mind. <laughs> Whether it's listening to a preacher go on, yeah, 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 uh, or a substitute teacher, you know, stumble their way through a, a foreign language lesson, they have no clue how to speak, or even a talk show host or a podcaster continuing to talk even though they've run out of things to say, but, you know, they have, they have a few more minutes to fill. I mean, in our world these days, we are inundated with voices talking that have no authority because they have no actual knowledge to back up what they are saying. That's the same way in the first century Jewish society. They were surrounded by so-called teachers of the law that would go on and on and on talking, debating irrelevant points of the law, not because they cared about it, but just to sound smart. But when Jesus came teaching, the people recognized right away, this guy wasn't blowing smoke like all the other talking heads of their day. This guy actually knew what he was talking about which I cannot imagine better news for us in these days of influencer insanity. Jesus knows what he's talking about. The kingdom of God is ruled by a king who knows what he is talking about. A king who knows exactly how to solve the issues in the Middle East, what to do about climate change, how to solve the racial tensions in our nation, how to effectively care for the refugees. That, that is the reality of the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of God, not only does the king know what he's talking about, but he's also able to overcome the forces that oppose him. If you move on to verse 23, it says, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. For folks in the first century, demon possession was a real issue that they really had no idea how to address. 
whenever demon possession occurred, they were stuck with no real hope, no real assurance of ever being delivered. So when Jesus encounters this evil spirit and with a word shuts it up and sends it away, the people experienced hope like they had never dreamed before. You see, when every new kingdom, every new authority coming into being experiences opposition from the incumbent authority, right? These days, when someone runs against an incumbent candidate, uh, the incumbent doesn't just step aside and say, but you know what? Yeah, I really, I agree. It's time for some new ideas. Ah, come on in, take over. Actually, no, it's, I mean, it's really hard to defeat a presiding authority. And up until Jesus, Satan and his minions were the presiding spiritual authority on earth. Humanity was suffering under their oppressive reign. But when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has drawn near, it means that their time is up. See, an amen goes right there. So we're going to back up and just try it again. No, 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 no. We can do it so we can get the flow. So here we go. Um, But when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has drawn near, it means that their time is up. There you go. They have no more authority, no more claim. They've been kicked out of office. Humanity doesn't have to live under their weight anymore. So Mark shows us that the kingdom of God is ruled by a kingdom that actually, by a king that actually knows what he's talking about, has power uh, over the opposing authorities, and even has power over the enemies of the physical body. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Along with living under the oppression of evil spiritual forces that they could do nothing about, First century society also lived at the mercy of biological forces that they could do nothing about. Now, in the past, I would have said something to the effect of how in these modern days, uh, with all the medicine and antibiotics that we have, that most of us don't deal with unmanageable illnesses that we can do nothing about. That, that kind of mostly only happens in less advanced countries where, you know, medicine isn't as advanced. That's what I would have said before 2020. But then 2020 came and coronavirus happened, and now it is very easy for all of us to relate to first century life and the idea of living at the mercy of even the simplest of viruses. So imagine Jesus walking into a situation where a woman is sick and him simply walking over to her, taking her hand, lifting her up. Boom, she's not sick anymore. How would that impact your outlook on life? If you or someone you love is dealing with an unmanageable health situation, 
And that is the kingdom of God at work. The kingdom of God is not just this spiritual thing that doesn't mess with physical or biological stuff, but Jesus has authority even over the biological enemies of humanity. And of course, on and on and on and on and on we could go really describing and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Well, that's what, that was Jesus' whole thing. That's what all his followers wrote about, what they taught about. It's what the church gathers together about and talks about sermons like this one and Bible studies and experiences and communities and classes. And That's why for 2,000 years people have talked about and written about Jesus and his teaching. I mean, last week Mike talked about us catching a glimpse of how wide and long and deep and high is the love of Christ for us. And just, you just sit, that for, sit at that for a second. How long could we sit and ponder that and still not get to the bottom of it? That's the kingdom of God. And you see this, this stuff and you meditate on it. It's not hard to see why the announcement of the kingdom of God is near. That's like the best news ever. Not just 2,000 years ago, but even today. The nearness, the availability of the kingdom of God where what God wants is happening. Where he is the presiding authority. That's the best news ever. The question for us, of course, is what do we do about it? Verse 15 again. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, when you've been kept under oppression, when you're used to year after year, election after election, regime after regime, nothing ever changing, when you've grown accustomed to the fact that no matter who's in charge, you'll always be on the losing end, it can kind of be hard to get excited to hear that a new kingdom's coming into town. Even if it is the kingdom of God, it's tempting to kind of just, eh, shrug your shoulders, figure, eh, nothing's really gonna come of it, and just kind of fall back to all the tricks and strategies that you've always used to survive in the world and kind of the way it presently operates. So when Jesus comes, he says, repent and believe the good news. He's saying that you need to change your mind. You have to change your thinking. You have to reconsider how you are approaching and managing your life. Because now, the realm of God's action, the place where God is busy at work, is open and accessible in a way that it hasn't been before. As Jesus leaves the heavenly realm and he enters this physical space that we inhabit, he brings the kingdom of God with him. And now anybody that wants to can have their little kingdom just swept right up into it. We're not stuck living under the presiding world system that we've grown used to. We're not stuck, enslaved to the appetites and the habits and the addictions of our body. We are not stuck under the whims and oppression of Satan and his demons. We can now live under a different set of rules. 
And we don't have to wait for some distant future after we die. We can, Jesus says, begin to experience that now. We just have to trust it enough to submit our little kingdoms to it. You see, believe it or not, we all have kingdoms too. I know, I know, it's hard to imagine, especially on those days when you can't even get the coffee maker to do what you want. It's hard to imagine that there's any place, any realm in the universe that what you want is done the way you want it done. But there is. That is part of the divine image that was hardwired into us when God made us. Now granted, our kingdoms really, 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 really small. It may just be our body. It may just be our minds, our social context. But nevertheless, it is our kingdom. And the story of fallen humanity is the story of us trying to assert our own little kingdoms over one another, over creation, trying desperately to expand and extend the range of our effectual will. And in all of that, we have made a horrendous mess. The hardest part is that through the process, our little kingdoms have actually been overrun by the evil, oppressive system of the world, and it's killing us. It's ruining our relationships, our attitudes, our concept of self, our understanding and experience of love, our bodies, our planet. Everything we have has been taken over by this oppressive system of sin. The fact that the kingdom of God has drawn near, as great as that is, will be irrelevant to us if we don't repent, change our thinking about how to live, and believe the good news. In other words, trust our kingdoms to the kingdom of God. Allow the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus, to set the priorities, to set the agenda for our life. And then learn the culture, learn the rhythms of the kingdom of God, incorporate them into our lives so that they become our culture, so that its way of thinking becomes our way of thinking. And all of this is a process. It's a process because at no point will God simply overpower us. You see, as part of God's amazing character of love, he does not force his rule on anyone. Even though he is the all-powerful, ever-present creator and sustainer of everything in the universe, in his sovereignty, he allows there to be places that are outside of his effectual will. He allows there to be places where what he wants to happen doesn't happen. He allows us to have our own kingdoms and, and to assert them in rebellion to him. He does not take our kingdoms from us. If we would like to remain in control, he will 
graciously allow us to. That's why in order for us to become active participants in the kingdom of heaven, in order for us to live in the reality of that kingdom, we have to intentionally surrender our kingdoms to him. We have to let go of the parts of our kingdoms that we're still holding on to. In order for us to experience God's kingdom of forgiveness, well, we have to surrender our little kingdom's demand for revenge. In order for us to experience God's kingdom of love, we have to surrender our kingdom's bitterness over past hurts. In order for us to experience the abundant provision of God's kingdom, we have to surrender the riches that our little kingdoms have accumulated. In order for us to experience the power of the kingdom of God, we must surrender our kingdom's demand to have power over others. And all of that, all of that is a process. This process that we call spiritual formation. You see, God's kingdom will not overpower us. It has invaded. It is all around us. It is close enough to kiss. But we can ignore it and continue to assert our little kingdoms if we want. But if we surrender to it, well, then all of a sudden we've gone from living a drab, irrelevant existence. We've gone from just killing time until we die to living an eternal kind of life where we get to experience the real present, the real action of the kingdom of God in and around our lives. And if you ask me, that's really good news. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? And as we pray, I just invite you to think of a situation. Think of a circumstance. Think of a person. Think of an area in your life. And maybe you are desperately holding control of A place where you are stubbornly trying to assert your kingdom. And things just aren't working out. I invite you to hear the words of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's available to you. It's available to that situation, to that relationship. All you have to do is repent and believe the good news. 
release control of your little kingdom and watch it get swept up into the reality of God's action. Experience the miracle of God's kingdom in your life. So Father, we we bring our kingdoms to you. Recognizing that we are half-hearted, we are afraid, our faith is weak. Don't even know the areas that we are still clinging to, but we trust your gracious work. We trust your loving hand. We trust the guidance of your spirit that through this all you will lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And that through it all you will lead us into the reality of your good kingdom. 